0: as aaron said we are continuing our series through the book of isaiah so we are in chapter 55 this morning and by the way we have started uh putting the sermon title and text on facebook on saturdays Uh, so if you have a desire to read the text or at least know the text before you gather on sunday you can look that up on saturdays and so today we are in isaiah 55 and talking through isaiah we've spent a lot of time talking about the setting in which Isaiah is ministering. And especially the last month or so, we've talked a lot about the fact that he is predicting what is going to happen in the future. That is, he is telling them that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, the temple is gonna be destroyed, they are gonna be deported to Babylon where they are going to serve as slaves for 70 years. And then eventually after 70 years, God is going to raise up a man by the name of Cyrus. We talked about him a little bit last week who was king of Persia, and Persia is going to defeat Babylon, and then Cyrus is going to issue a decree to allow the Jews to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple and the city. And the, that part of the story, the return, is told for us in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, we've done all of that because the more we understand about the context of the letter, the more we understand the scripture itself. And therefore, ultimately, the better we can apply it and the more correct we can apply it to our daily lives. And also, we wanna get into the mind of the original audience as best we can. That is, what were they thinking? How are they feeling? What are their doubts and discouragement? What are their hopes and their dreams? And in doing all of this, we focused quite a bit on their physical circumstances. That is, their current state of affairs and their desire to eventually return back to Jerusalem. And although God is going to do that, even as he had promised, frankly, it is not his major concern. And therefore, it should not be our focus either. Yes, God did want them to return. That was the promised land, the land that God had given them. So God did have an interest in bringing them back to that land, but it was not his primary concern to bring them to a geographic region. God's primary concern was for them to return to him. Their relationship with him was always more important than the land upon which they lived. Likewise, we occasionally talk about the fact that America needs to return to God. And I am not disputing that, I am not debating nor disagreeing with that assessment. However, I usually do not preach my sermons to America, unless of course you count the hundreds of thousands of people that are no doubt watching online even as I speak. Now that's ministerial counting, if you know what that is. We ministers tend to exaggerate when it comes to how many people are listening to us, and so I am exaggerating. But when we talk about the emphasis on America, we tend to emphasize someone else. That is, does America need need to return to God? Absolutely, but that's for the people out there. We don't tend to think about ourselves when we talk in that manner. But if there are so many in our country who indeed do need to return to God, then statistics would tell us that some of us likewise need to return to God. Maybe some of us have drifted away due to sin or apathy. Perhaps we've become accustomed to the routine of Christ and to the routine of the Christian life, but the joy is now gone. Maybe you even know that something is missing and have known it for some time, but you just can't put your finger on it. Sometimes we call it our need to be revived or renewed. Today I'm simply calling it our need to return to God. Last week from Isaiah chapter 45, my title was Turn and Trust. It was an evangelistic message to those who have not put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, telling them, you need to turn away from your sin in repentance and turn toward God in faith so that you can be saved. Today, the message and the text is very similar in that sense. It is indeed evangelistic, and so some of you may still need to turn and trust but the word here in our text in verse seven is return. And so I'm talking today, not only to those who need to turn to God for salvation, but I'm talking to those who need to return to God. You know him as your Lord and savior, but you've drifted away and need to return. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 55, it's 13 verses. So we will read and look at all of this chapter. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast Sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. shall break forth into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. There are some wonderful verses in this particular text. Now in looking at this, you notice perhaps that we've gone from chapter 45 to chapter 55. Which means in the process, we have skipped over perhaps the most important chapter in the book of Isaiah, and that is Isaiah 53. The reason I did that, and I stated this at the outset, is because we did a brief three-week series on Isaiah 53 back in 2016, and so I did not want to repeat myself. However, I do need you to understand that the significance of Isaiah 53 underlines what we're looking at in Isaiah 55. That is, Isaiah 53 is the prediction of the coming of the suffering servant, the Messiah whom we know as Jesus. And so anything we see in Isaiah 55 and anything that we talk about from this text could not have been said without Isaiah 53, without Jesus Christ dying in the place of sinners, paving the way for our relationship with God. And so in returning to God, the first thing we need to relearn is our need to delight in him. I am pulling that word from verse 2. And although it says there that we are to delight in rich food... We're going to discover this morning that it's really not talking about food at all. It is talking about the spiritual delights of a dynamic relationship with God. So how do we learn or relearn to delight in God? Well, it starts very simply with our need to come to Him. Our text begins with yet another invitation, very much like the invitation we talked about last week, both of which were universal in scope. That is, the call goes out to everyone. But here it says, come to me, those of you who are thirsty, which means there must be a recognition of our need. That is, we must admit that we are thirsty and lacking something before we will ever come to God. And obviously that makes sense. We will not be ready to seek a solution to a problem unless we first know that there is a problem. So you and I will never return to God until we first acknowledge that we have drifted away from God. As I've said before, in this desert environment in which Israel lived, water was a life and death issue. And so in the Bible, water becomes a symbol of spiritual life, quenching your spiritual thirst by coming to God in faith. And the imagery certainly reminds me of that famous encounter that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman at the well. Instead of going around Samaria, as was the custom of the Jews, Jesus went through it and he paused at a well and there comes a woman to the well who did this every single day to draw water and she is shocked on this particular day to find a Jewish man by the well and a Jewish man who speaks to her, both of which did not happen in that culture, and he says to her, would you give me a drink of water? And a dialogue begins, and eventually Jesus says to her, If you knew who I am, who am speaking to you, you would ask me for a drink of water. Now, as was often the case in the New Testament, they always thought in physical terms. And so the woman looks at Jesus and realizes that he has nothing to draw water. And so she says to him, How can you give me a drink? You have nothing with which to draw. And so they begin a, a, a dialogue about worship. And eventually he says to her, I could give you water that would spring up from within you to everlasting life such that you would have no need of coming to this well again. Again, she's thinking physical terms. And she says, give me this water. Then they have the dialogue about worship. And eventually, Jesus acknowledges to her that he is the Messiah who can give her spiritual water to quench her thirst. And so this is the kind of water that Isaiah is talking about here as well. Not literal water, but the water of life that is found in God alone. And then, of course, he expands the imagery to talk about food and invites us to come and enjoy freely. So you say, well, I cannot afford this water. I do not have the money to buy this benefit that God is talking about here. And so Isaiah says, there is no money necessary. It is freely offered and it is freely given. And you might know the well-used phrase, if it's free, it's for me, right? I mean, that's a, that's a good thing. I mean, if you're giving something away free, I'll take it. Most of the time, even if I don't need it, I'll, I'll take it anyway. I like a good bargain. I like to make sure that I get the best price for whatever it is I want. But free is even better than that. And so if you were to ask me, what is your favorite restaurant? I probably wouldn't say it, but my thought would be whichever restaurant you're taking me to and you're paying the bill. Because I like that. Now, I'm not saying that to get an invitation to lunch. I'm just acknowledging that we like something that's free. That's why when we do go to lunch with someone, we we play that game with the bill where we act like we want to pay it, but we don't put up a whole lot of resistance when the other person says they're going to pay it because we like free. So why then does it say in our text that it is free and yet we must buy it? How can we buy something that is free? Because it's free to us, but it is not free. Remember, I told you that the suffering servant of chapter 53 underlines everything we're looking at in chapter 55, and here is one of the places that we see that. He paid the price, so the bill has already been settled. It wasn't free. There was a serious price to be paid, but that price has been paid, and therefore, the invitation to you and I is indeed free. We can come, and we can enjoy the banquet. But the crazy thing is... We would rather rather than accept this invitation and enjoy its benefits, we tend to often go in a different direction and settle for far less. There are endless delights in the presence of God, and yet we choose a different path, a path which Isaiah acknowledges cannot satisfy. And so we substitute junk food, if you will, with the bounty that the Lord is offering, and then we wonder why we don't have a vibrant relationship with God that satisfies Again, I'm reminded of something Jeremiah said, another Old Testament prophet. Jeremiah said, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. That is, they have turned away from God. And they have hewned out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. He says the people had left the God who would spring up within them this fountain of living water and they've gone to dirty and broken cisterns that never could possibly satisfy. And that might just describe you this morning, the way you've been living. And if so, you have this invitation to come and to delight in him, to feast in the food and beverages that he offers. You need to respond but there is a second, is a second aspect to this delighting in him, and that is we must also listen to him. Verse 3 closely ties these two elements together. Come to me, but as you do so, you must also hear and listen. We have all kinds of voices vying for our attention. And often it is the loudest that seems to win out. I suppose you've heard that we are going to be the fortunate ones. We're going to be one of 15 states in just a few weeks that gets to hear the cicadas for 6 to 10 weeks. And it is supposed to be a huge brood of cicadas this year. These insects only come out every 17 years. And this particular brood, which is brood X of the great eastern brood, is supposed to be massive. It's one of the mysteries of the insect world or the animal world that they live underground for 16 years feeding off the sap of trees and then somehow know exactly as a group when to emerge from the ground and torment us while they lay their eggs for six to 10 weeks. Whenever the ground temperature reaches 64 degrees and get this, when the ground temperature reaches 64 degrees and it's not raining. They'll delay their emergence if it's raining. But when the ground temperature reaches 64 degrees, they will come out and they will lay their eggs and we will hear their constant sound for those weeks. Now, for those of you who might be interested, they are edible. (laughs) Uh, They are a great, low-fat, high-protein snack. And so if they really get on your nerves, you can just eat them. And there is a group from the University of Maryland that has actually put out a recipe book with dishes such as cicada dumplings, emergence cookies, and El Chirpo, El Chirper tacos. So you can have some cicada tacos this spring. Now I doubt if any of us will eat those, but all of us will hear them. Because they will be so loud that we will have no option. And that's what we want from God, isn't it? We want God to speak so loudly that it will be unmistakable and we will know, thus says the Lord. We want the dramatic and the unmistakable. We want it to be so radical that it cannot be missed. There's a story in the Old Testament where the prophet Elijah shortly after the great victory that he had against the false prophets on Mount Carmel, he then after that runs for his life from Queen Jezebel, and he finally gets to this place where he's there all alone, and he's despondent and discouraged, and he's crying out to God. He says, God, I'm the only one left that's been faithful to you. No one else is doing what I'm doing. I need to hear from you. And so God brings a strong and mighty wind And then God brings an earthquake. And then God brings a fire. And the Bible tells us that God was in none of those three things. But after those three things, Elijah heard a whisper. And God spoke to him. Now hear me clearly. I am not saying that God is going to speak to you audibly if you will listen closely enough. What I am saying is that God has spoken through his word. And we need to listen closely to it. Because there are always going to be louder voices in our minds and in our world vying for our attention. And if we're not careful, we are going to pay more attention to them than we do the message of God. But God has made a covenant with us, his covenant in our hearts to bring us into a relationship with him. And in this relationship, we ought to find our delight But because there are other voices and because there are pitiful substitutes in abundance telling us that we can find satisfaction somewhere else, we not only need to delight in him, secondly, we need to diligently seek him. I'm borrowing the word diligently from verse 2. And then I'm applying it to verse 6. We've all had the experience of misplacing something valuable Perhaps more than we care to admit. Every once in a while, I have, that, I have that feeling like I don't know where I put my phone. And instantly, there is this immediate panic of what has happened to my phone. And as a result, that becomes, at least for a few minutes, my all-consuming desire. I've got to find the phone. Seeking my phone becomes the most important thing in that moment. Everything else is put on hold. And that is the kind of seeking that is called for here in this text. Not a casual glance and then we give up, but a concerted effort to seek the Lord who is valuable. Jesus told multiple parables to teach us this point, the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and then the most most famous of the three, the parable of the lost or wayward or prodigal son. And at least in the first two of those parables, the emphasis is that when something of value is lost, all measures are taken in order to find that which is lost. The urgency of the command is compounded here in Isaiah with the two phrases that follow it. Seek the Lord while he may be found and while he is near. The inference inference being that you cannot simply assume that God will always be calling. The truth is that, we harden, that as we harden our hearts to the things of God, as we hear and as we harden, it becomes harder to hear in the future and harder to respond. We grow cold to the things of God, and he seems further and further away, and we have less and less of a desire to respond, which is why there is an urgency to this decision, to turn to God or to return to God as the case may be. So what is involved in diligently seeking him? Well, number one, we must forsake our way. This is the portion where we turn away from that which we've been doing, or in spiritual terms, it is called repentance. Acknowledging that our ways and thoughts apart from God are sinful and contrary to his path. Now, that does not mean that we must clean up our act before we can come to God. You need to understand that it is God who gives us the strength and it is he who cleans up our act. It is not we who do that first, but it is an acknowledgement and a desire to turn away from the path we've been on and to live and think differently. I fear we've done a great disservice to countless, if not generations of Christians by telling them that all they need to do is pray a one-time prayer and they have all the benefits of eternity. And I'm confident we've communicated this well and clearly because studies continually show that there is very little, if any, difference between the life of a professing believer and the life of an unbeliever in the way they think and in the way they live. Now, I understand why we've emphasized this. We're so fearful of bringing works into salvation and making sure that salvation is by grace through faith that we've emphasized all you have to do is pray a prayer. But in the process of being afraid, we're going to trample upon grace. We've trampled upon grace on the other end of the spectrum. And that is we've told people it really doesn't matter. We've done the opposite of what Paul said, who said, Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says, God forbid, we can't do that. And yet that's exactly what we've done unwittingly, I think, in many situations today. I don't know about you, but as I read these verses and countless other texts that speak about the same thing, Jesus did not say here, pray a prayer. He said, come, follow me. The Great Commission is not just about evangelism, though it is. But it is also about discipleship when it says, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. So clearly, part of turning or returning, as the case may be, is to repent and to forsake of our sinful thoughts and deeds. And then to secondly, find his compassion. I mean, look at the promise there. For those who repent and turn to God, the promise is of compassion. And I really like the next phrase, for he will abundantly pardon. Not just pardon, though that certainly would have been sufficient, but abundantly pardon. God promises to forgive all of our sin, not just some, and to shower us with compassion because that is his heart. He is a compassionate God, slow to anger, and abounding in kindness and love. And then in verses 8 and 9, these might be familiar to many of us. Perhaps not verses that you've memorized word for word, but you've heard the idea. I'm confident I've said it from time to time when talking about some aspect of God's nature or character that we're having trouble understanding. And so in order to explain it, we just say, well, our thoughts are not his thoughts. Our ways are not his ways. Our finite minds cannot understand an infinite God, at least not completely. And all of that is true. But again, we have to look at the context here in order to come to the meaning and the application. And there are two basic options here as to exactly what these two verses mean. First, you notice that the words ways and thoughts are repeated multiple times. You must turn from your ways and thoughts, and then our thoughts are not God's thoughts. Our ways are not God's ways. And so, what, what, it, what it can mean here is that obviously we must turn away from our ways and our thoughts because our thoughts are not God's thoughts, and our ways are not God's ways. Our ways are wrong, His ways are not. Therefore, we must turn from ours and turn to His. The other option is to use the grammar rule, sorry to throw in some English here, but the grammar rule of the nearest antecedent. And the nearest antecedent here to verses 8 and 9 is the compassion and pardon that I just mentioned. So here the idea would be that it is hard for us to believe that God is so full of compassion and that God will so abundantly pardon. We find that hard to believe because our ways and thoughts are different than his. In other words, we tend to hold grievances. We tend to fail to show compassion and pardon others. I taught the youth group this past Wednesday night in Jake's absence, and he asked me to teach on the book of Jonah. And so we talked about the book of Jonah, not just about a man and a fish, there's so much more to that book, But we talked about the fact that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach the gospel because he knew God to be a God of compassion and pardon. And he did not want the Ninevites to be saved. They were his enemies. So he knew if he went and preached, God just might save them. And that's not what Jonah wanted. Jonah wanted judgment on his enemies, not compassion and mercy. And I think in that regard, Jonah is so very much like us. We want others, especially those who have somehow sinned against us, to get what is coming to them. And therefore, we have a hard time understanding a God who is compassionate to pardon us, even as we continually, descend, continually sin against him, sometimes even with the same sin over and over again. Now, again, both of these conclusions as to what verses 8 and 9 are specifically referring to, both of these are biblical. It's just a matter of which one Isaiah is talking about, and we can't be completely sure. But thirdly, diligently seeking means that we must fulfill his word. A few weeks ago, we looked at the verse that said God's word uh, remains. Unlike the grass and the flowers that fade away, God's word abides forever Verse 11 builds on that and proclaims that God's word not only remains, but now it accomplishes that which he desires for it to accomplish. Just like the rain and the snow that comes down from heaven, it does not return there. Rather, it accomplishes what it's intended to accomplish. And in creation, the rain and the snow, especially in a desert environment where there was no irrigation, it was vital, it was life and death for the crop. And so the rain and the snow uh, provided moisture for the crops so that the crops could produce fruit, the fruit could be eaten by the people, and not only did it produce produce for the people, but it produced seed for the next year. And so if there was no moisture, famine was not very far away. The prophet Amos applies this to the word of God. He says there is coming a famine of the word of God, but that's not what we want. What we want is to read and hear the word and embrace the promise of God and to bear fruit accordingly, not only fruit in our own lives, but fruit in the lives of those to whom we proclaim. Which leads us to our third point. A return to God comes with a desire to follow him. I basically referenced this a moment ago when I said it's much more than just praying a prayer. Instead, we are to take up our cross and follow him. That's what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, pray a prayer and you're good. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. But that does not mean that life is going to be filled with suffering and pain, though there is going to be that. In this passage, we find the positive side, the good side, if you want to call it that. First of all, we we see that we follow him with joy. This is not a grin and bear it kind of approach. This is not a keep your head down and hopefully you can make it to the end and go to heaven when you die. There's much more to the journey than this. And so we see here creation personified as breaking out in song and praise in this renewal. And again, the question becomes, what specific event is Isaiah referring to in these last two verses? Well, some take it to refer to when they do return to Jerusalem after the 70 years of captivity. And there certainly would be much joy at that time, and yet we also know that many of them chose not to return. Uh, many of them had become so comfortable in Babylon, they stayed. Plus, the transformation of nature that's referenced here seems a little bit strong to represent merely their journey back home. And so others conclude that, the gather- that this is the gathering of the saints at the end of the age where the earth likewise will be transformed, and certainly this indeed might be the case. A third option is that this is spiritual in nature. It's not a literal return to the land, but a return to God through redemption. And I made the point at the beginning of this sermon that returning to the presence of God was always more important than a literal return to a specific piece of land. And In this case, the change in nature would mirror the change in our own nature when we are redeemed. And that new nature then includes joyfully following. And then secondly, we follow in peace which again it can mean f- several things. If it's physical in nature here, it can mean they'll have physical peace on the way to Jerusalem. That is, they do not have to worry about their enemies. Or spiritual peace, that is peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He himself, Jesus, promised us uh, his peace. My peace I give you not as the world gives unto you, but as I give unto you, which does not mean an absence of anxiety or struggles in life. It means a reconciliation with God. We who are enemies now, we walk in peace with God based on our new relationship. So joy is that inner transformation that comes about through redemption. And peace is that new relationship that we have with God and both of course are tremendous benefits which should drive us to desire to follow him now I know we tend to think that everybody else needs this but I'm just fine but perhaps this morning you realize that you are the one who needs to respond It is you who needs to return to God in repentance and faith for the first time. You need to turn and trust and be saved and begin a life of following Christ. Or it is you who need to return to God. You've drifted away from him and the response is similar. It is faith and repentance but not for salvation in this case but to be renewed or to be revived in your relationship with him. And again, that is what this time of invitation is all about. A time when we invite you to respond. That response might be private, which means you can do it right there in your seat as the rest of us seeing you are bowing your head in prayer. And between you and God, you are returning and being renewed. You can also do that up front if you desire to, you can do that at home as you're watching online. But it also might be something that you need to do publicly. That is, you need to profess that to the rest of us. And again, that might include joining this church or following through the steps of baptism. But remember those two haunting phrases that I mentioned earlier? Seek me, God says, while I may be found. Seek me, God says, while I am near." The urgency of this situation means that we cannot presume upon another day. We cannot presume upon further calling by God. We need to respond now. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for your invitation. Come to me, all who are thirsty. Seek me diligently while I may be found. And I pray today that there would be some who would turn to you in salvation, and others who would return to you for renewal is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, and you respond.